This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll have another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, little Eric, and Tiffany, told by Amy Willens. Today, the kids go to the convention. Also later in this hour, our TV critic Ella Taylor recommends the best documentary on immigration enforcement and a 70-episode drama on collaboration and resistance. First up, the Republican National Convention. For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, day one of the Republican convention was so dark and angry I could hardly stand it. But then day two had some kinder and gentler moments. So I'm confused. Can you help? Well, the, the convention is proceeding on two tracks. Track one is to solidify and, if anything, expand Trump's appeal to his base, to the people who are comfortable with the uh, nativism and actually the racism of the, of the Trump uh, presidency, not the people who would respond to his swearing in uh, five immigrants uh, on, uh, on Tuesday night, because the second track is, is designed to win back some swing voters. We, we know from the polls that there are a lot of, for instance, college-educated women who are historically Republican, who have been repelled by uh, a lot of the Trump presidency. And so night two was really kind of an attempt to win, to win a number of those voters back. Suddenly he's the, uh, the great partner. Suddenly he's uh, the guy who uh, uh, naturalizes immigrants and been attested to by a range of speak Republican speakers of color during the convention. That's kind of a Republican tradition. Usually, if you're in the hall, as I have been for six uh, previous Republican conventions, the idea that they're putting out uh, televised images of African Americans testifying to what an inclusive uh, party the Republicans are while you're sitting in an arena that's 98% white among the Republican delegates and alternates and spectators, that's kind of incongruous, but uh, such is not the case in this convention because there's no arena, but it still has to overcome, you know, clearly where the party and where Trump has gone on, on issues of race. The kinder and gentler side uh, had a pretty effective uh, spokesperson Melania. She was dressed like Fidel Castro, but she expressed empathy for victims of the pandemic. Seems like the Republicans really need Melania right now. Yeah, they do. I mean, I think she uh, is, is perhaps mo- definitely the most effective uh, spokesperson for that kind of outreach. She, she definitely conveys the impression that she realizes there's a bigger world than the one that comes across on Fox News, that, uh, you know, that the pandemic really has screwed up American lives. No one else in the first two nights of the convention has said anything remotely like that. They've been trying to gloss over what is the major disruption 
uh, in American life, the most major one since God only knows when. She, you know, she has lines in there about it's, it's a moral obligation to care for children, etc. Now, I mean, there's two possible interpretations you can put on this. One is it's sort of a subtle critique of her husband's policies. Two, given that she hasn't spoken out against locking up toddlers in cages once they're separated from their parents, you know, that this is simply a, uh, a cynical ploy. And, you know, there's really no way to get to the bottom of this. Melania is one of the most concealed figures uh, in, in, in public life, largely because she has largely shunned public life. So, so there's, no, there's no error-proof way to determine what this is about. I mean, she, refers, she referred to the three great religions of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, uh, no reference to her husband's Muslim travel ban, uh, which didn't suggest he thinks it's a great religion. So, so she's a conundrum. But, you know, a conundrum is as good as this administration can get uh, in, in, in reaching out to more moderate voters. Aside from Melania and the pardoning of the bank robber in Nevada and the swearing in of the six uh, uh, immigrants uh, who became citizens, the main message uh, of the convention, as you put it, so eloquently at the prospect is that Joe Biden is really Joe Stalin. Doesn't seem all that convincing somehow. No, no. And when I think the most uh, specific equation uh, that came out of the convention was on the first night from a guy named uh, Maximo Alvarez, who had uh, fled Cuba uh, right after uh, Castro uh, and uh, his his buddies took power in 1959. And what, what he was saying was that, uh, A, Biden is influenced by these socialists, and B, uh, these socialists are probably really communists. Um, that's a hard case to make. I mean, Biden is, uh, uh, is sort of one of the old shoes, as it were, of, uh, of, of American politics. He's been around forever. The notion that uh, uh, Joe Biden is really Joe Stalin, I think, is a hard sell. Uh, but, you know, I, I think stuff like that is intended maybe to bring out some, you know, real right-wing types who may uh, actually look down on voting as, as perhaps too effete. But if, if we're really in the kind of civil war that some of the Republican spokespersons, spokespeople have, uh, have suggested, then, uh, the, then they may, you know, turn out, on the, turn out to the polls. One historic note, I've used this phrase, kindler and gentler. That, of course, comes from the elder Bush, George H.W. Bush, was what he, how he promised he would change the Republican Party when he ran in 1988 against uh, Dukakis. Remind us about how kind and gentle that campaign was. Well, there again, you, you, you had uh, the rhetoric there and you had the reality that he, he won by associating Michael Dukakis with, uh, uh, you know, this, this scuzzy, permissive brand of, of leftism uh, focused uh, by his ad featuring a guy named Willie Horton, a, a black man who had gotten out on, uh, on release from prison and uh, then I think some killed somebody. So, uh, the Willie Horton ad uh, was, was, was certainly a turning point here. And, you know, the, 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 there's stories in the press about the Trump people looking at Bush's 88 campaign 
as perhaps the one and only model for how you can come back because Bush was down by an even larger margin than Trump is down now before the attacks on Dukakis were made. But there, there's some significant differences though. Uh, Dukakis was really kind of an unknown quality. He was the governor of Massachusetts. Most Americans didn't know beans about him, uh, to use a, a Boston, uh, <laughs> yes. an, an appropriately Boston uh, figure of speech. And that's not the case with Biden. Also, uh, Bush in 88, Papa Bush, wasn't running with a record. Uh, he wasn't the incumbent. Trump is the incumbent. And there, there is the uh, two pesky facts of the pandemic that he has failed to arrest and uh, the economy that has gone down with the nation's health. So they're not really equivalent situations, but I think uh, that Trump strategists look at this and say, well, our only model for, for winning this thing is, is 1988, Willie Horton, and demonize the opposition. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised if Trump comes up with a, a, a TV ad about uh, scary black men murdering people and how that's what the Democrats want. Well, uh, I mean, that's, that's already been a feature of the rhetoric at this convention. Uh, you know, uh, it's uh, never mind the peaceful protests. It's, it's all the rioters. They're coming to get you. And you have the uh, McCluskey couple, the gunslingers of St. Louis, saying that, you know, they're coming for us and, they, and, and that Biden wants to, quote, abolish the suburbs, uh, which, which, which would be a hell of an agenda, I, uh, <laughs> if true. Uh, and what that means, and Trump has already used, uh, used this line of attack, is, is that the Democrats uh, and Biden do favor building more affordable housing uh, in the suburbs, since there's a housing crisis in the United States. And this could bring in people of lower incomes. You know, the fact is, most suburbs are much more integrated or somewhat more integrated now than they were when Richard Nixon began this kind of campaign in 1968. In a way, I mean, thematically, uh, the Trump campaign harks back to all of the, the dog whistle campaigns, the law and order campaigns, the, 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 the uh, they're coming for you campaigns uh, that, that the Republicans really initiated with, uh, with uh, Nixon's Southern strategy in 1968. Well, before the pandemic hit, Trump had been planning to run on the economy. Of course, we're in the middle, as you say, of the worst depression since the 30s. So I guess they've abandoned the argument about the economy. Well, Trump's, uh, the head of his Council of Economic Advisors, Larry Kudlow, actually dealt with it last night in a somewhat bizarre way. He referred to the pandemic in past tense and just talked about how America is bouncing back and Americans are, are getting jobs again. So uh, it's, it's as if whatever has happened between uh, late February and right now hasn't existed. That, I think, is a hard argument to make. Uh, I think it runs counter to the life experiences of so many Americans that, uh, that that's going to be a hard one uh, for them to bring home. I think, I think that's one of the reasons why demonizing Biden and the Democrats is, is we're likely to hear more of than uh, the great record Trump has had on the economy. Of course, the, the stock market is hitting record highs. Many of us are kind of scratching our heads about it. Haven't they, haven't they heard how things are going? But 
I guess the stock market uh, doesn't always reflect the experience of, uh, you know, the man on the street. And if you break down what's happened in the stock market, and the Wall Street Journal and other publications have done this, and the journal, of course, on the news pages, not on the editorial pages, really, the gains in the stock market are all about the big tech companies, which have uh, soared because people are more reliant on them, uh, and Amazon above all. And that actually, if you take out the big six uh, tech companies from the uh, Dow Jones and the, the Standard & Poor's Index, all of the other 494 stocks on the Standard & Poor's Index have declined uh, in wow. value uh, wow. since, since the, start of the, the start of the pandemic. And so really, you know, what, what, Trump is basically, <laughs> what Trump is basically saying is that the, the great, there's this great economy and uh, that, that's because of Jeff Bezos, whom he hates, because Bezos owns the Washington Post. In fact, I haven't thought of that until now, but I got to write that. Uh, I, think I think you got something there. Yeah. Let's talk about the Republican platform. The platform, of course, is the party's statement of principles and then the policies that they promise to pursue to fulfill those principles. The Democratic National Conventions, historically, is often the site of bitter battles over the platform where the progressives and the kind of mainstream establishment fight over what the party's official goals are going to be. Tell us about this year's Republican Party platform. I will, but I just want to note that even this year's Democratic platform, there was considerable negotiation between the Sanders Warren forces and the Biden forces to come up with uh, the, the, the finished platform. On the Republican side, they did something utterly unprecedented. They don't have a platform. The business <laughs> session of the Republican convention convened in Charlotte on Monday. It renominated uh, Trump. It renominated Mike Pence. And it said, we're not going to have a platform. We're, we're, we're cool with, you know, the party's position is whatever essentially whatever Donald Trump wants it to be for the next four years, which is, you know, kind of a, a peculiar thing for a political party to do. It's, it's more what you would expect of a cult. And I, I think, you know, some political scientists will no doubt be studying this, but whether the, today's Republican Party is, is really a cult uh, that's very well funded and has a ballot line, but it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing you would expect out of a political party. I mean, what it basically means is that the party's position is whatever pops up on Fox and Friends in the morning that Trump watches and decides to, uh, on impulse, to uh, embrace. Uh, that, 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 that's a, you know, a, an amazing form of political abdication. The Republicans may not have a platform, but they certainly do have principles and policy goals. They, this, they haven't changed, you know, in our lifetime, lower taxes for the rich and the corporations, less regulation of polluters and labor law violators, uh, suppress voting by communities of color. Uh, are these unmentionable or, or do they get mentioned at the Republican convention? No, they get mentioned all the time. Uh, and and, and uh, although they get the way in which they're mentioned often distorts them. You know, there's been considerable reference to the uh, Trump tax cut of 2017, but uh, it, it comes across as something that really benefited uh, the great majority of Americans. So it, it comes out in the convention, but in this uh, almost grotesquely sanitized way. We know about who is watching this convention. I saw that most of the audience was watching on Fox. What does that tell us? 
Well, that means that they're talking to the faithful. And, and truth be told, uh, during the Democratic Convention, the highest rated network was MSNBC. So this is not uh, 1960, 1964, when everyone tunes into Walter Cronkite. Uh, that is a, uh, a lost <laughs> continent uh, politically, uh, you know, by the standards of today. Harold Meyerson. He's watching the Republican National Convention so that the rest of us don't have to. You can read his daily reports at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold, especially for this work you're doing, and it's, it's always great to have you on the show. This, this should benefit me in the afterlife. Uh, it's always <laughs> great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for the Children's Hour. Stories about Don Jr., Ivanka, Little Eric, and Tiffany. Today, the kids go to the convention. For that, we turn again to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and a Guggenheim award-winning writer, best known for her work on Haiti. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, all the Trump kids, except for Barron, are on the program of the convention. Uh, almost seems like a competition. I should... I should say we're recording this before the last night, Thursday, when Ivanka, the favorite, will introduce her father. But we did get to see the other three and some affiliated people. Uh, Don Jr. was featured on the first night. There was, there was a lot of snarky talk about how he seemed to be in a cocaine-induced frenzy. What did you think? Well, he's a Trump. So they all always seem to be in a cocaine-induced frenzy, with the possible exception of Tiffany. Yeah, he's glassy-eyed, but they all have that kind of zomboid, glassy-eyed, weirdo thing. I don't know. He seemed perfectly, for a Trump, normal to me, a little bit hyper, but you'd be hyper too in that situation. And also, I think he, like some of his siblings, has some political ambitions for the future, so... He's doubly geared up, not just to protect daddy, his relationship with daddy and his money that will come from daddy, but also his own future as one of the, um, a dynasty, a word that has never seemed so apt. Uh, it had that same quality that all the children's speeches had and really almost everything that happened at the convention had of turning everything on its head and making you think wait, they're describing what the Democrats want as their platform and describing what they've done to the country as what the Democrats have done to the country. It's just <laughs> like when Donald Trump complained about the election, which he won and got the presidency and complained about how unfair it was. And now he's complaining about what happened during his administration and blaming it on the Democrats. I mean, there's not rioting in the streets because of the Democrats. Oh, it's you know, a topsy-turvy world. Well, you know, it, it occurred to me watching Don Jr. Um, 
almost feel sorry for him, or, or maybe not. Uh, it can't be easy to be Donald Trump Jr. We know he's had a hard life. We know he tries. I what Donald said when he was born, and Ivana, the wife at that time, said, I want to name him after you, honey, Donald Trump Jr. And he said, Daddy said, what if, looking at his darling infant, what if he's a loser? Whoa, no, no one says that. <laughs> and it'll, and and remind us how old was Donald Trump Jr. when his father said, "What if he's a loser?" He was a baby. I think he was like an hour old. Yeah, he was just born. He looks at his baby and says, "What if he's a loser?" And you know, Don Jr. No, not only does Don Jr. have this ringing in his ears for the rest of his life, he knows that you know a hundred million of the rest of us look at him and think this is the guy the first thing his father said about him is what if he's a loser so who told the world that fact not donald trump senior but his mother uh, ivana trump so she told the whole world that that's what his father thought of him what what we see in his you know sweaty frenzied shouting uh, speech is he's trying so hard to be like his father he's he's trying so hard to please his father it's easier to please your father if the words that are coming out of your mouth are written by the same people who write for your father, write for your brother, write for your sister, and have orchestrated uh, a narrative for the Trump children that they're not even inventing. So it's easy to please your father if you're saying what your father wants you to say. But, but you know, let's tell the truth. Donald Trump Jr. is just not that good at it. Maybe not to us who know about the Don Jr. comment, but he sounded strong in the way that Trump sounds strong, belligerent. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't stumble or fumble, and he went through it as if he meant it, and probably he meant it. And uh, Another thing that happens if you're in the Trump family, if you're a man in the Trump family, is your girlfriends and wives have to be models. They have to be Donald Trump has ma only marries models. He wants his daughters to look like models and his sons ma marry or have girlfriends who are models. And, and he wants to hire women who look like models. His, um, his desire for a certain uh, physical norm extends not only to all the women in his administration who are platinum blonde, bottle blonde babes with extensions that extend like Lady Godiva over their breath. <laughs> and we saw one of the girlfriends in action on night number one, Kimberly Guilfoyle, the girlfriend of Don Jr., really uh, kind of blew everybody's mind, I have to say. Kim Guilfoyle. Uh, she's a lawyer. Um, she was in the San Francisco DA's office. She's a prosecutor. She was there with Kamala Harris. They didn't get along, I think, because she was more liberal than Kamala at the time. Whoa. Um, but there may be other reasons those two women didn't get along. She then married the man who is currently our governor, who was then our mayor. Sorry, I'm in California, listeners. So he was the mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom. You may have heard from him on the East Coast. And now he's the governor of California. A presidential jumping off point is the governorship of California. So I hope Kimberly Guilfoyle realizes she may be backing the wrong party. But 
she used to be a kind of liberalish person. Her father was a lifelong Democrat associated with the Democratic Party. He was like a machine boss in San Francisco. He was a builder like Donald Trump. And uh, her mother, she claimed she was a proud Latina and that her mother was an immigrant. But her mother was an immigrant to California from Puerto Rico, which we will tell her the next time we see her is part of the United States. So you can't immigrate to the United States from Puerto Rico. And for day for night number one, she was one of the star speakers in primetime wearing an incredible red dress. I'm sure Donald Trump was very interested in the red. Donald Trump shrink wrapped, my friend, (laughs) and um, and a little bit busting out all over, although within the norms. Um, And she had the Godiva hair down over the breasts and um, and she was extreme in every way. I mean, if anyone was on the drugs, she was the one who seemed most like she was on the drugs. But I think it's performance. It's all about performance. She was going to outdo everybody. She was going to be more Trump than the Trumps. She, I can't imagine Ivanka was so pleased with her performance. It was so visible, extreme, insane, right wing. A lot of people compared it to when Dwight from The Office pretended to be Mussolini. And so I watched Dwight a little bit because I read about that. And then he's this kind of schlub and I love him. And then I watched Mussolini and then she was more like Mussolini than she was like Dwight. (laughs) Thank you for that. And, and, And we haven't even gotten to really the content, which is so horrific of both of these speeches. Well, tell us about the content. Then this is Donald Trump Jr.'s favorite thing, the Democrat Party, the Democrat this. Like, the, like to be a Democrat is some disgusting, despicable thing in and of itself. It's just a really grotesque usage. And he tells, he tells just a string of lies about COVID. Um, he said that, you know, his father, my father, there's some kind of weird religious feeling to the way they repeat my father. My father got ventilators to hospitals. No, he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) My father delivered PPE to our brave frontline workers. No, he didn't. No, no. My father actually refused to allow the U.S. federal stockpile to go out to people, to, to states in need. My father actually gave a number of helpful things to red states and denied them to blue states. That's disgusting. And then he said, my father, and we've talked about this, John, my father rallied mighty private, our mighty private sector to tackle this new challenge. <laughs> no, he, instead of putting industry, which he claims to care about, on a war footing to produce these important things. He bought them from the Communist Party of China <laughs> and brought them into the United States. And he put Jared Kushner, who has never done anything successfully, his son-in-law, in charge of rallying the mighty private sector, which then just competed over contracts that where nothing, almost nothing came out of them. So the whole speech was full of lies like that, but on the coronavirus, it was the most obvious. Well, let's move. Moving on now to night two. Night two, we had we had Eric and Tiffany, who we don't see much of at all. Um, Eric is the youngest of Ivana's children, very much overshadowed by his big brother Don Jr. and his big sister Ivanka. But I had the impression uh, from 
from the second night that he still seems to be in competition with them for their father's approval and to utter the right uh, right-wing lines. Little Eric, my favorite sentence of Eric's was, the American spirit built the Hoover Dam, defeated fascism, defeated communism, and in 68 days will defeat the radical left, close quote. The Hoover Dam, wasn't that a government program? A WPA program? Funded by the taxpayers. And uh, I, I was, thought he should have said, you know, this is exam- an example of the socialism that will make sure never, you know, darkens our door again. Yeah, but you know what? It's big. <laughs> well, that's true. And it's powerful. Um, so he can't say that. He, he, likes, he likes the Hoover Dam, therefore our spirit built it. So after the American spirit, which I guess we're supposed to think of as a Republican avatar of Trumpness, after it builds the New York skyline and the Hoover Dam, it will soon send... Americans to Mars. Really? I didn't know they were doing that. (laughs) I didn't know our spirit was doing that. But beyond that, I didn't know that was a a Trump plan, but he must have said that at some point. But I kept thinking, oh my gosh, send Americans to Mars. That's where they're from, especially when you think about it, Eric Trump. So what are his initials? E.T. I just kept thinking, you are so extraterrestrial. Good, Mars, excellent. So I thought that whole shtick was was just crazy. And one of the things I also enjoyed about the content of his speech, there were a couple of things that were really good. He talked about uh, the greatness of the Grand Canyon and the shadows of Mount Rushmore, which were destroyed when they set off all those fireworks there and the stillness of the air at Gettysburg. I'm like, these are dog whistles that I'm not even, I'm not even a spaniel, I can't get these things. And then he talked about the wide-eyed wonder of every American child as it takes its first breath in the greatest country in the world. And I, I was thinking about Trump's 100 or so attacks on the environment and Trump's desire to delete the Clean Air Act from America's uh, rules and regulations. So I was thinking about all the kids who live by the side of freeways and the kids who drink the water in Flint, Michigan. And so all the kids breathe their first breath in this greatest country in the world, except for those who are downtrodden by Trump's behavior on the climate and and the long-term American bad behavior on the environment. And also I wondered about the little children who breathe the first breath of American air in their little cages while they wait for their mom and dads to try to figure out where they are in the Trump bureaucracy so they can try to reclaim them. I mean, that, it was an astonishing piece of grotesque patriotic lies, his speech. Very difficult to stomach. Oh, then- and he ended by saying how much he loves his daddy. The last part was actually addressed to his father. I love you, Daddy. I'm so proud of you, Daddy. I'm so sad for Eric. (laughs) This is why we call him Little Eric. It's so unfair. Then there was Tiffany. Tiffany, we hardly ever see or hear from. Just to remind people, she's, she's younger than the others. Has a different mother, Marla Maples. Her mother got her away from the evil father and raised her separately far from Trump Tower. And some of us, I can only speak for myself here, had the fantasy 
that Tiffany had escaped and was on her way to becoming an independent person, maybe even, maybe even someday like Mary Trump, her cousin, who wrote, you know, the fastest selling book in the history of the world. But I have to say, Tiffany shattered that fantasy on, on Tuesday she didn't night. Live up to your illusions. <laughs> she said people like you and me are, quote, mentally enslaved, close quote. Wow, that, that sounds really bad. You know, to be like Mary Trump, who wrote the tell-all book about Donald and the family, you have to be left out of the will. So Tiffany is no doubt still in there and would like to retain her place there. And so much of that kind of thinking is going into this kind of uh, behavior on the part of the Trump kids. And when you have money like that, if indeed he has money like that, which they all assume he does have, it's something to be a little delicate about for these children. They don't want to alienate him. So they go, go whole hog. I would say that Tiffany was put in there in her powder blue pantsuit in order to appeal to like soccer moms, etc. But as you say, John, to our ears, she was still pretty harsh. She was still pretty tough about how we're being manipulated by the media. She wanted to make people think that anything they think that's bad about Trump is the fault of some media complex that's a lot like Fox News, but is anti-Trump. Whereas they have the biggest uh, propaganda machine around on their side, the most consistent, the most dedicated to telling lies, Fox News. Is this an amorphous group of journalists trying to find the truth on the other side, I think, people. Um, but she calls it a uh, media system, uh, misinformation system that mentally enslaves us or mentally enslaves us because she has a good American accent. <laughs> and, and she included technology in there, just, I guess, concern that the social media giants might act against Trump at some point, although he has been completely enabled by them. Twitter has enabled him. Facebook has enabled the bots and trolls. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure she's going to keep technology in there. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about how Tiffany looked. You've mentioned her blue pantsuit. Because the most important thing about any woman, as we have said, in Trump world is how they look. Uh, it's, there's one of the great things about Mary Trump's book is he, where she recalls the first time that Donald Trump saw her as an adult after like having not seen her for 10 or 12 years. And the first thing he said to his niece was, quote, holy shit, Mary, you're stacked, close quote. With that in mind, I thought she looked kind of strange, actually. Well, she looks kind of strange. You know, um, I've followed Ivanka for a long time, and I know what Ivanka looked like before she was fixed um, and plasticized completely. And, uh, that's a little bit what Tiffany looks like. Her face is rounder than Ivanka's. It's a little bit broad. She's a little heavy set. I thought she did a good job in dressing because uh, she didn't try to highlight her sexuality. She wore a pantsuit, but she had the hair. But that hair was done by one group of people alone. Only Melania had her own hairdresser, I would say judging by the way the girls look, they, they were done in exactly the same fashion, Kimberly Guilfoyle and, and uh, Tiffany. I thought she looked, uh, she had a huge amount of makeup on, way too much eye makeup, but she looked like a little baby version of a Barbie doll. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
She's like a Cupid doll dressed up like a Barbie doll or something. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you feel bad for her. She's kind of on the out. She's, uh, she's not with the other three zombies. She said something interesting, I thought, which was at the end, she said, my father does not run away from challenges. And I kept thinking, yes, he does. He often makes these big threats on Twitter. And then like two days later, you find, oh, no, he's backtracked on that. Oh, no, he's not really going to do that because somebody else told him, don't do that. He, he backtracks all the time. He doesn't follow through. He's not uh, a policy guy who really cares about what he said yesterday. And finally, we should say a few words about, about Melania. She, she dressed like Fidel Castro, but, but she talks sort of like a human being. It was pretty impressive, really. Well, of course, people like you, John, are always hoping that she'll somehow burst out with something true. <laughs> Free Melania. Well, and she feels like she's like at the edge of actually saying something true. But she knows she's not. She's in that same cabal for the same reason. And she has to stick with the program. I thought when I thought about the uh, Fidel <laughs> aspect of her outfit. Well, now, Melania is no leftist. You can be sure of that. She's Slovenian. She grew up under Soviet rule. None of them is a leftist. Okay. Yeah. There's hardly one left still alive. And if they're still alive, they'll be poisoned soon. <laughs> um, so that outfit, I think, was to appeal to military people. It was sexy. It was military. And she talked more than anyone about veterans and veterans' welfare and how they fought for us and blah, blah. She was the kinder, gentler attempt by the Trumps. And that's why she sounded like a human being, almost like Biden, like she was actually talking to the people on the other end of the camera. But ew, there he was sitting in the front row with that horrible grimace on his face. Like, that's who she's talking and, to. Yeah, it's so it's... it's it's certainly the conventional thing that the wife is soft and cares about children while the right. husband is right. strong and hard. Uh, I, w I was a little surprised that he was frowning in the front row while she was speaking. He should be beaming. He doesn't do beam. <laughs> she would not let him escort her. I assume that was her. Oh, yeah. She wants to be her own person and have her own image. And when that picture of her, I mean, I, she's a model. So when the picture of her comes out, the still photo. She doesn't want forever to have that fantastic dress overshadowed by this boorish person she was once allied with. I'm sure like Maria Shriver, she's out of there the minute he gets out of the White House. In the end here, you've got a couple of memorable quotes, highlights from the children at the convention. Here's uh, Donald Trump. Junior, imagine a world where you have a great job. Imagine a world where you have a beautiful home. Imagine a world where you have a perfect family. You can have it, he says, if you reelect Donald Trump. I have to say, at that point, I thought, is this my beautiful house? Is, is this, this my, my beautiful, beautiful house? <laughs> Me too. Is this my beautiful wife? <laughs> How, did, How I did I get here? <laughs> Okay, that's Don Jr. Here is Eric. Eric said, he quoted Ronald Reagan, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. I felt as I, he said that, that I was looking at the generation. <laughs> yes. um, and then he said, it must be fought for. And that's a fight that only my father can win. Only my father, just the way Donald Trump said, I alone can fix it. 
they've swallowed the Kool-Aid or are pretending to, and they alone, they think that he alone can win the battle to save our freedom. This has been the Children's Hour. The kids go to the convention chapter with Amy Willens. Amy, thank you for watching the convention for us. and Thank you for today's report. You're welcome. It was a job. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Virus Time TV, Ella Taylor's ideas about what to watch this week. Ella, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today again at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Hello, and the heat is broken, so I'm a cheerful soul. Well, I'm glad that even though it's the week of the Republican National Convention, you are not suggesting that we watch movies that speak to that experience. You're not recommending Invasion of the Body Snatchers about the alien pod people <laughs> who take over the minds of our friends and neighbors. You're not recommending Bride of Frankenstein in honor of Melania. What what have you got for us this week? Well, it is it, in some way related to uh, Melania because while she was giving her speech, um, declaring her sympathy for families who dwell right now in anxiety and uncertainty, I was watching a really wonderful uh, and essential, I would say, documentary series on Netflix called Immigration Nation, which has been playing for a few weeks to excellent reviews but I really wanted to commend it to our listeners. It's not a joyful experience. You know, there are parts of it which uh, many of our listeners will already be familiar with um, just from the news, but it's also an extremely careful and nuanced and analytical study of what, how this situation came about uh, and why it persists and why otherwise rather decent people um, will uh, consider themselves part of the push to, uh, you know, to oust undocumented, undocumented immigrants, most of whom are fleeing uh, from really quite dire situations in their own country, and some of them face almost certain death. Um, it's directed by Christina Clusiau and Shaul Schwartz. Um, and it's a mini-series uh, that uh, started, that, that spans um, 2017 uh, to the present, including footage of the operations of ICE in the Trump era. And somehow or other, they managed to get access to drive along with ICE agents who are on their way to arrest um, and potentially detain and deport undocumented immigrants. And that turns out to be extremely illuminating. 
but it takes multiple points of view in each episode. Um, the agents, the bureaucrats who are in charge of, of deciding what happens, uh, and the immigration judges. And I want to say a little bit about that, who legislate, who can stay and who can go. Most heartbreakingly, uh, it, it talk, the series discusses the situation with these immigrants, some of whom are in detention. They talk to their families and their kids and their families in Latin America, uh, where they have to decide whether to allow themselves to be deported or to try to go underground again. In previous administrations, the series shows only those uh, undocumented immigrants who were involved in serious crimes, meaning felonies, were rounded up and deported. Under the Trump administration, uh, they're really going after all undocumented immigrants, um, often uh, who end up getting deported for, mis for misdemeanors like traffic tickets. And as one woman agent uh, who they ride along with said, finally, we can do our job. Uh, and the parts, you know, some of it documents the everyday misery of the lives of these undocumented immigrants, some of whom are already in detention, uh, some of whom uh, have been released with uh, huge ankle bracelets um, into the community because they're considered low risk. They live with constant fear, constant uncertainty, um, the worry that if they even leave the house, those who have not been trapped yet, they will be. Um, insolvency, because in most cases they're not allowed to work except under the table for, for you know, the worst of all possible wages. But worst of all, of course, is the separation of children from their families. In, some, in many cases, those children are as young as three years old, and they interview one family where the mother says, that when after 40 days separated from his parents, the three-year-old, when they were finally uh, reunited, wouldn't talk to either of his parents, which is very oh. common in situation. Yeah. And she said, when he asks for things, he raises his hand. Oh. And that just undid me. I mean, that was, that is a, you know, and this is not a lone case, obviously. One of the things you notice about a lot of the men, and it is mostly men who are um, arrested, is the decline into a kind of dull-eyed passivity and in despair. There are very, very few who remain hopeful, um, largely because of the, the brutality of the the, man, the manner in which they're treated. But on the other hand, um, not all the agents or bureaucrats or judges are terrible people. And one of the great things about this documentary series is that it, it makes a distinction between agents who are thugs and they do exist and they do ride along with them. One guy is particularly horrifying. Um, and actually, other and people who are troubled by what they're doing, but they they say they're just doing a small part of the job of this. So that the real, as with the the series Stateless, the Australian series Stateless, which was set in a detention centre, which we discussed a few weeks ago, the problem is the atomization of functions within the system. 
so that every, any given individual is only doing a very small part of it, which allows any given individual to say, well, I'm, you know, this is my job, this is what I do, I'm not responsible for the decision-making at the top, which is correct. <laughs> uh, and for many of them, this is the only job that they've known. Right now, they can't leave that job because of not being able to get another. Another important point of the series, which I didn't know, is that the immigration judges are not independent. They are actually answerable to the attorney general. So in fact, the system is being run and adjud adjudicated um, by uh, people who are in the executive function but are answerable um, to a rather corrupt uh, judicial structure at the moment. And uh, the other point about this is that the detention centers are being run by private companies, like as the prisons are. Um, and that is not a good thing. <laughs> you know, it leads to more brutality. Uh, they want more people in their detention centers, so more people are being detained. There is one very good episode that deals heartbreakingly with veterans of the United States Marines or, or the Army who have been detained. Um, some of them were thrown out of the army. One of them, the one they follow most closely is, is uh, across the border now uh, in an undisclosed location as he tries to fight to get back into the United States. Another deals with getting out the vote um, in local areas so that they can actually turn you know, these statutes around, some of which are enforced locally. So it's an outstanding series. It is not boring at all. Uh, it is occasionally uh, heartbreaking, but um, I highly recommend it. It's very well done. And so that's uh, the uh, six-hour documentary, Immigration Nation, on Netflix. We have another one to recommend for you. Yes, uh, this one is, has been around for quite a while um, since in, in the United States since 2015. It's a wonderful drama, dramatic series um, called A French Village, uh, which has seven seasons altogether and 72 episodes. But I can practically guarantee that if you start watching it, you're going to want to continue. It, it's a, unfortunately, you can watch four seasons for free on Amazon and Hulu. But after that, they, uh, for the last three seasons, you have to subscribe to MHZ, which made me very angry. Um, okay. <laughs> but it's set, it's not, there's not a single frontline action. It's set during World War II, during the Nazi occupation of a fictitious small village of Villeneuve uh, in the Jura Mountains, very close to the Swiss border. And all the action takes place in or around this very small village as it tries to cope with uh, German occupation and the fact that um, Jews who have been rounded up elsewhere are being sent to their village to be detained and then sent, as it were, to other places which are never named. Um, there are also some local Jews, which strains credibility a little bit because this is a small village in the Jura Mountains, yes. um, but allows them to develop the, you know, develop character. Uh, and character is really the reason to watch this dramatic series because um, 
it operates in a gray zone for everybody where people are dealing with the um, ethical, political, and survival issues that allow them to, to behave in extremely um, inconsistent ways. There's, there's no all-out heroes. There's one villain who is a member of the German Gestapo, uh, but mostly this is about Vichy and their, cooper their cooperation with the Gestapo. The mayor of the village is a physician and a decent soul who puts himself on the line for many Jews uh, and local people uh, who are being hounded both by the Gestapo and the police. But his love life is much more complicated. Uh, his wife, who is played by the lovely uh, actress Audrey Fleurot, who also, she's a stunning redhead, who also appears in the French series Spiral, Spiral if people have watched that. Uh, and he becomes involved with their maid, who is Jewish. So uh, there's that storyline. There's Herr Schwarz, also played by a, an actor from Spiral, who is a local businessman who does business with the Germans, but is not of them. He's a very complicated character indeed. There is a young woman farmer and a local school principal who are the focus of the mushrooming resistance uh, that gradually crystallizes um, in this village uh, against the Germans. It is not favorable at all to the Communist Party, um, which is extremely doctrinaire, executes its own when they are considered to deviate from the party line. And uh, it's just marvelously complex. There's a lot, the drama is very low key, but really keeps you on the edge of your seat because it's really all about trying to stay one step ahead of the Germans while at the same time surviving. And uh, I gather it was enormously successful uh, in France as the country you know, progresses towards examining its own very comp highly compromised relationship uh, with, with Vichy, uh, excuse me, with, um, with the Germans. So it's highly recommended. At the end of the fourth season, <laughs> you have to decide whether to, you want to pay to see the rest. And one option is, is to actually buy the series, I was told by a friend, to pay for it at Amazon instead of joining MHZ, which I think costs about 30 bucks. So I can practically guarantee I'm getting ready to drop my own 30 bucks because I really want to see the end of it. It's really um, a wonderful, wonderful. The acting is wonderful. The script is just terrifically complicated and it's just incredibly nourishing. And let me emphasize, I, I, this, is, this is a drama. This is fictional. And yet it has a kind of documentary feel to it. Yes, it does, and uh, it was deeply researched, I gather, and um, I just love the fact that they have set this not in Paris, which most dr dramas or action movies that deal with German occupation do, and there's lots of gunfights and so on. There is some violence here, but not much, and it's really about ordinary people um, trying to, to cope with the situation. Some of them will end up doing heroic things, and some of them will end up doing terrible things. All of them doing both. <laughs> and that's, that's life. <laughs>
Today, we've been talking about Immigration Nation on Netflix. That's the six-hour documentary about ICE agents at work and what happens to the people they target. The New York Times said, if you watch only one documentary about immigration, by all means, make it Immigration Nation. And we've also talked about A French Village. It's on Amazon Prime. Ella, always great to have you on the show. My pleasure, John. See you next week. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.